And that's when I fired the first shot. You know, one of those students, uh, he, uh, he was somebody I was friends with when we were little kids, when I used to play Little League and everything. He was somebody I was on a Little League team with. And uh, yeah, so they, they, they turned back around that corner and ran for their lives. Welcome back to Other People's Lives. I'm Joe Sanigato. I'm Greg Dybeck. For anyone out there that would like to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to reach out. Our email is oplpodcast at gmail.com. Just send us your story and we'll get back to you. Today, we're speaking to a man named John Romano. On February 9th, 2004, John, who was 16 years old at the time, walked into his high school with a 12-gauge shotgun and opened fire. John was released from prison in 2020 and... Obviously, we understand that this could be triggering for some to hear this perspective and the recounting of events, but John, since his release, has aimed to be part of the solution when it comes to school safety, and he's here today to offer insight into his mindset at the time and what he believes led him to commit that terrible act. So, John, thanks so much for reaching out to us and being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I do believe this is going to be hard for some people, but it's an important conversation to have. Yeah, absolutely. So to kick this conversation off, can you just bring us back to your 16-year-old self before you walked into the school with a gun? Who were you as a kid and what was it that you were feeling that ultimately led you to attempt a school shooting? Yeah, so first I would like to say that when I talk about some of my sexual abuse issues that I'd had happen in my life or the mental health issues I had, I'm not blaming what I did on that. I just believe it's important to address those issues as I wish more people would be able to talk about these things like I wish I had been able to. So I had been somebody at 16 who was struggling and in therapy for a while. I had opened up a little bit to my family and friends, but nobody really knew just how much I was struggling. And from the outside looking in, people saw somebody who had played sports, had friends, dated. I didn't appear to be struggling as much as I really was. And that's something that I wish I could go back and change. I wish I had opened up and been more honest and vulnerable and shedding the light on the darkness that was within me. I'm curious in that situation, were there moments where you opened up, but you felt like it was overlooked by family or friends, or do you truly feel like you just were not vulnerable and and did not discuss the issues that you were dealing with? So there were times when I opened up a little bit, when I was 15, I actually called my mom from school And I was in tears just saying, I can't do this anymore. Something needs to change. I I can't even finish the day. And she brought me to see my doctor and they got me into therapy. And so I had opened up to my mom a little bit on that day. And of course, she had been showing me plenty of love and care and concern afterwards. But I I continue not to open up. I I wanted to protect her from some of my own pain, from some of my own sorrow. Uh, Like I mentioned, I had been sexually abused as a small child, and that was something that weighed on me for a long time. And yet 
I never spoke about it with my mom, even though I could have. She was the type of person who would have let me speak and share and open up, but I didn't. And I, I wish I had. So was it, you know, was it ultimately like your high school experience um, that sort of like fueled this fire to the point where you ended up, you know, bringing a, a gun to school? Um, and also, like, what were you kind of feeling like, you know, in those days you said, I can't even get through the day. Like, what, is, what were you feeling on those days where it became overwhelming? Yeah. So when I was in high school and things kind of came to uh, a peak with my with my internal struggles, where even before the shooting, uh, the year prior, I had started therapy and I'd also started to have more and more issues at school. I didn't have problems with bullying, per se, um, but I was just trying to get uh, my academics back on track because I went from being a A and B student to a C, D, and even I was failing classes. And I went to the school administration and I asked for help. I was asking help from my counselor. I was asking for an IEP, an individual education plan. They're pretty common today, but back then they had them in my school, but they refused to help me. They, in fact, told me that maybe I should just stay home and try homeschooling. And uh, that really made me feel different than everybody else. It made me feel alienated. It made me feel neglected. It made me feel like I was just, you know, not seen, not heard, not there for them. And that's kind of what led me on this path to holding a lot of resentment towards those in the school. Do you remember the first time that you had a thought that you could go to school with a gun? And why do you think that felt like a solution to your problems? So it was actually a journey of first, I was in middle school when Columbine happened. And I remember being terrified of being the victim. And I went from that terror and that fear and literally sitting in class and I didn't want to sit near the door. I wanted to sit near the window. So if something happened, I could jump out. And slowly but surely, it just kind of turned more into I wanted a gun myself. I wanted to first protect myself. And then it became when I did have the depression kicking in. I yeah, I sometimes thought about what would it be like to bring the gun to school and to end my life in front of others to show them my pain. Was that like always like a thing? Like, did you ever want to hurt other people or was it you just wanted to like end your own life in front of people? Yeah. So as far as like fantasizing about killing other people, uh, that wasn't really something that uh, I struggled with. I'm not going to lie. I did have plenty of times where I definitely wanted to hurt people. But thinking about going into my school and doing what we see too often on the news today where, you know, countless kids and teachers are killed, that, that wasn't something that was really um, in my mind at any point. Hmm. Okay. So at what point do you actually acquire a gun? And, and how did acquiring that gun sort of change this from a fantasy to something that could become real? So the gun um, was actually purchased just two days beforehand by my mother. And she had been hesitant. She had refused to have any type of firearms in the house while I was growing up with my brothers and sisters. Um, and it wasn't until I seemed to be doing better 
when I was in therapy and I was dealing with a lot of superficial issues, I seemed to be improving. I seemed to be doing well. And uh, one of my older brothers was coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was talking about how he wanted to spend time with me hunting. And that's when I first started to talk about, yeah, like I'm doing better. Maybe it would be okay for, you know, for my mom to buy something that she could use for self-protection at home. And I could use if I go hunting with my brother. So my mom bought the gun after my therapist, after my psychiatrist, both told her that they felt it was okay for me to have access to a weapon. She bought it on Saturday and the shooting literally happened Monday. And part of it was that having access to it now made things go from, you know, a fantasy that I hadn't really been thinking about to now when I had the gun and also some of my family and friends, they were concerned when they heard that my mom had purchased this gun and they expressed their love and concern to me. But I was also still distorting things in my mind. In a depressive moment, I started to believe that their love and concern was, oh, you don't trust me. You don't believe in me. Nobody's ever going to trust me again. Nobody's ever going to believe in me again. And that's when it started to become a reality of, I can now do this. I I know where the key to the lock is because my mom kept it locked up. And I said, all right, I, this can become a reality. You know, I can end my pain. I can end my sorrow. And I'll spread that sorrow to others. It, it's interesting to hear that, you know, you had a psychiatrist, that you were in therapy before these events. I'm just curious, were you ever officially diagnosed with any mental illness or psychological disorder in that time? Yeah, so I had been diagnosed with uh, clinical depression and general anxiety disorder. Um, I had been on different medications um, that were like SSRIs in the beginning to help with depression. But then actually some of the side effects would lead to me needing more medications. So I went from taking SSRIs to also taking uh, anti-anxiety pills, uh, to then having trouble to sleep. So then I was on Ambien. And so I became on this cocktail for a while. But during the time before the shooting, uh, I've been taken off of most of those medications and I was still on Xanax, which is for anxiety. And that was the only medication that I was on, so. And when you, uh, you know, you get the gun on that Saturday and you said the shooting happened on a Monday, uh, was there a lot of like planning or, you know, how exactly were you even going to go about bringing a gun into the school? Was it concealed or you just walked into the building with the gun out? So I knew that I would have to blend in. Like I drove in late that day and I knew that I would have to blend in. So I had a backpack on and the shotgun was in its actual case, which is a like black hard plastic case, which I knew anybody seeing me would assume that I was carrying in a musical instrument or something like that. And I was able to walk in the front door. So to Joe's point, like, did you spend that weekend kind of stewing over this? Was there a plan that you made? Were you unsure like did you know that this was going to happen on monday or how spur of the moment was it so no like when my mom got the gun there was no ill intent uh but after i kind of downward spiraled 
like Saturday night, I was out with friends. Um, and Sunday morning is when it really started to uh, dawn on me that in my mind, nobody trusts me anymore. That was what I kept telling myself. That was what fueled me was the nobody trusts me. Nobody believes in me. Uh, you know, I'm never going to be able to amount to anything. All the things that I think I'm going to be able to do in life, none of it's ever going to happen. And that's the key right there is when I started to believe that I didn't have a positive future. I didn't have uh, the ability to live a good and successful life. I wanted to end things. And so it literally went from Saturday night with friends, having a good time to Sunday morning, the depression really kicks in to overdrive. And by Sunday night, I was writing out a suicide note, preparing to die the next day. And at any point, you know, I know you said no to this earlier, but at any point when you were walking into the school with a gun, did you think that other people were going to get harmed at any point? No. Um, so I, I knew pretty much that I was using a, a low-grade ammunition, uh, seven-and-a-half-grade bird shots. It's, and I'm not saying that you can't hurt somebody with that, but that was kind of my intent is let me, you know, I was there to make a scene. I was there to either finally be able to pull the trigger on myself, or I knew that if I fired off some shots and terrorized people, the police would be showing up and they would be ready to kill. And that's how I hoped to die. So, okay, if that was like the intent, uh, can we just talk about like, so the morning of you walk through the front door, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with the shotgun in its case, and how soon after that does the shooting take place? And, you know, kind of just walk us through what happened that day. Yeah. So when I walked through the front door, I went up to the second floor where there was the locker base and classrooms, but I ended up going into the bathroom and I went and I sat in a stall and I was actually in there for probably a good 45 minutes because suddenly once I was in there, I wanted nothing more than to leave. And I had that moment of going from fantasy to reality, and I didn't want to go through with it. I wish I had been able to do more to have stopped myself. All I did was text a few friends thinking maybe somebody can talk me down. But this was also at a time where cell phones were a little bit less common and nobody was really paying attention to them as much in class. So my friends got these text messages after it was too late. 45 minutes is a long time. Do you remember, you know, what you were thinking or what you were telling yourself in that moment? Were you actively trying to talk yourself down? And what happened at the end of that 45 minutes? Yeah, so I, I really was trying to talk myself out of it where I remember very specifically just uh, thinking about uh, just getting back out to the truck to my idea was the, the biggest problem was, okay, I was able to get in here, no problem, but will I be able to leave? And that was a part of my fear too, was getting caught on the way out. And I started to feel where, okay, I've come this far. I'm at the point of no return. I can't go back. I have to go through with this. And I kept convincing myself that. And I just want everybody to also know that no matter what you're going through, if you're ever thinking about hurting yourself or others, it's, it's never too late to stop. I could have stopped myself. I could have called anybody. I could have called my mom. I could have called my therapist. There's so many ways that I could have stopped myself, but I didn't. 
So when you walk out of the bathroom, did you walk out of it, you know, kind of with the shotgun in your hands and people saw and started running? Yeah. So when I, I start to leave the bathroom, I had the shotgun in my hands down at my waist. And as I'm walking out, it's kind of po pointed forward. And that's when a student, he comes around the corner and he starts to enter in the bathroom as I'm leaving. So he literally pauses and freezes in front of me, maybe two or three feet. And he sees me and he's just, he literally says, this can't be real. And he turns around and he runs away. I, I, I heard later on, I was told that he ran into the very first classroom, slammed the door shut, and then started to book, push a bookshelf in front of it. And when I walked out and I was in the hallway, I came around a corner to see two other students coming around the corner 40 feet away. And one of them even yells out, oh shit. And I'll never forget, um, because in that moment to everybody, it was still a regular day. And there was a teacher who heard him yelling that. And I remember her saying to watch your mouth. And that's when I fired the first shot. Although I, I pointed away and I pointed up towards the ceiling and the shot went above them into the ceiling, but they didn't know that they, you know, one of those students, uh, he, uh, he was somebody I was friends with when we were little kids, when I used to play little league and everything, he was somebody I was on a little league team with. And, uh, yeah, so they, they, they turned back around that corner and ran for their lives. And I just began to walk down the hall. And I remember that, you know, the doors of the classrooms were all closed, except for this one. And I hadn't even been trying to open up any of the doors or anything. I just remember seeing this one door with the door was wide open and I stepped in to the classroom. I stood right there in the doorway and I saw everybody and I saw them hiding on the grounds underneath their desks. And I remember seeing the teacher at the front of the class and she's hiding underneath, there's a table and she cries out, oh Lord. And I, um, I remember one of the students, she pops her head up above her desk and she's looking at me and she's one of the people I was just hanging out with Saturday night. So she has this look of fear and terror, but also of confusion. And I turn around and I walk out and I'm walking down the hallway and I'm just envisioning like, just waiting for the police to come or maybe even just being able to sit down and put the gun in my mouth and pull the trigger. But before any of that happens, I get grabbed from behind the vice principal, he had heard the shots. He didn't know what it was, but he came to investigate. And uh, he would eventually, he would see me walking down the hall and he ran up and he grabbed at me and he grabbed at the gun because it was still, the whole time it was down at my waist. And so he came up behind me and he reached one hand and he grabbed the barrel and the other hand came around the other side and he grabbed at the stock and he squeezed me in between it. 
And I remember just like at first trying to like push the gun like out and away, but he was a strong guy and he was on my back. And I start trying to like shake from side to side, trying to get him off of me. And that's my finger was on the trigger. So the gun goes off. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't know that there was a teacher coming up behind us. And I didn't know that I just shot him. See, he got hit in the shin, thankfully. He was already, he was able to get the help that he needed physically, but psychologically him and so many others were traumatized. But I mean, I didn't even know I shot somebody. And I'm still trying to get this guy off my back, the vice principal, and eventually I just let go. And I said, fine, I give up. And uh, that was it. He just grabbed me by the back of my jacket and, you know, he, he walks me over to this office that's closed and he's knocking on, it's a teacher's office. And I can still remember the teacher crying. And I remember the vice principal telling him, it's okay. I got him, it's over. And uh, they put me in the office on the ground, waiting for the police to show up. And yeah, by the time the police showed up and put me in handcuffs and took me out of there, the SWAT team was showing up and, you know, they were asking me, is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? No, it's just me. So at what point during, you know, you let the first shot off and you say, you know, and we can hear you being like emotional while telling this story. Was there at any point during this where you already started to regret your decision or did that all kind of hit you as you were sitting there waiting for the police to show up? Honestly, I started to numb myself. I became disassociated uh, and I, I, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel remorse. I didn't feel pleasure. I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel regret. I didn't feel anything. Even after the shooting, it was like my mind was in shock and I couldn't handle what I had just done. And it just kind of, it hit me in waves as the days, weeks, and years went on where it would just hit me in waves of how much pain I had caused people I yeah. just don't think I was able to, to mentally handle it at first it, it feels like just hearing you tell that story like Joe said it's full of emotion and it feels like so much of the remorse is around the trauma that these people you know had to live with after those actions these people that you said you were even friends with at that point uh, it, is that something that you kind of began to regret immediately uh, once you, I guess, realized how these actions could have long-term effects on, on these people that you knew? Yeah, so as time went on, and it wasn't just about the people who I knew, but I mean, as time went on, obviously I realized that my actions not only hurt people that were right there who saw me, but the people who heard me, but all of the students, the, the staff, even their families, as their families start to hear, there's been a shooting, there's been a shooting. And this is, of course, just four or five years after Columbine. Everybody's thinking the worst. Everybody's flooding to the school, thinking that they're 
their son, their daughter, you know, somebody that they love is now dead. You know, so I mean, yeah, that that it took it took a while, but that really just started to hit me more and more as the time went on. And uh, for a long time, I I didn't I didn't think that I'd be able to to be any sense of positivity in the world again, because I knew that I had caused so much trauma to so many people. And honestly, all I'm doing right now when I speak to you and others is I can't take away that pain, no matter how much I wish I could. But I can try to prevent other communities from experiencing that. Absolutely. And, you know, in the days to follow, can you just talk about the obvious consequences of this, um, the sentence that you received and ultimately uh, the time that you spent in prison? Yeah, I spent 17 years in prison from the shooting. I was, uh, I pled guilty and received the sentence of 20 years for attempted murder and reckless endangerment. And throughout the time that I was in prison, I was kept in maximum security because they claimed my crime was just so public and violent. And they believed that I was a threat and but I'll tell you, though, throughout my years in prison, what really helped me turn my life around was the compassion I got from people. And I know that that might sound crazy to hear, but people from my community ended up reaching out to me and saying, what you did was horrible, but I hope you get the help you need. I hope that you're able to turn your life around. And people believed in me when I didn't believe in myself, you know, and especially hearing that, the forgiveness from people, that was also something that really influenced me where it made me believe, okay, maybe I have done something terrible. Maybe I have done something that will hurt people for the rest of their lives. But thanks to the compassion of some, I was able to start believing in myself. That feels very rare or or at least unexpected. Yeah, trust me, I'm I I struggle to believe in myself sometimes where I uh, I had so many people reaching out to me and even some of my friends who were also my classmates, they kept in touch with me and they were letting me know what was going on within them, within others, how people were recovering from everything that had happened. And that also kind of helped keep me in touch and realizing the pain that I had caused so many. So there was definitely the balance of the pain and the suffering, but also that other side of that people willing to have compassion, which is definitely rare, but is powerful. And how do you feel about your sentence? Because you, you know, essentially transition into adulthood while in prison 17 years is a long time you know formative years do you feel that it was fair and fitting yeah so i would definitely say that i understand the criminal justice system wants to set an example and they want to hopefully prevent others from following down the same path that i did however i tell people it doesn't matter how much time you give to somebody in this situation because other people who may be thinking about doing the same thing plan on dying before they're ever arrested. So 
I think that New York State has come a long way since 2004 in realizing that juveniles are juveniles. I was charged and treated as an adult, despite nowhere else in society was I treated as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so, does, I mean, does that mean, like, so how do you feel about that? Like, do you think that there should be some, there should be something different that would have, should have happened to you back then rather than getting 17 or 20 years? Yeah. So I think it's important for, um, people speak a lot about mental health these days. Um, and there was some talks of it back then, but I believe that mental health needs to be a priority when we're dealing with those who wrong others. And especially when you do something as bad as this. Now, am I saying that that excuses anything? No, definitely not. But I do believe that we need to bring back some type of, um, Either we need to create a prison system that helps people rehabilitate themselves, you know, not just um, with crimes, but with their mental health, with their mental well-being. You know, we need to bring back the mental institutions and not the ones of old where they were places of horror. But we need to be able to help people get more in touch with themselves and how to express themselves, how to work with others and never feel like they have to lash out and hurt others again. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask, like, do you have an opinion on why, you know, we've kind of seen an uptick in this country of school shootings? Um, do you have any, like, I guess, insight on why that might be? So I definitely believe that there's ways that we can stop this from happening. Unfortunately, our country seems divided and instead of choosing one path or another or even compromising, it seems to be at a standstill where nothing happens. And because nothing happens and because there's so many issues going on, especially within adolescence, where they do feel trapped, where they do want to lash out, we just see these things increasing. Instead of if you believe there's more security needed, try that out. If you believe that more mental health is needed, try that out. But it seems like we're not doing anything, period. There are some schools making an effort, but I hear from parents, especially who reach out to me time and time again, these schools have done nothing dramatic to change these things from happening. And I'm not blaming the schools. I'm not blaming the school districts. I'm not blaming anybody, but I'm saying we should be doing something different as as the years have gone on and as things have evolved, we need a different strategy. I honestly, myself, I tell people that instead of investing in as much security, we should be investing more in psychology. We should be investing in mental health specialists who should be on school staff, who should be available to help out all of those who need something extra. Because teachers are able to help students out in most cases, but sometimes a little bit extra help is needed. And I'm one to believe that we should be spending more money and resources on our teachers, on the counselors, and investing in more mental health staff. Because at the end of the day, a lot of security won't prevent a mass shooting. A mass shooter is not going to walk through the metal detector and say, oops, and give up the gun. No, they're going to be most likely shooting at an armed guard that's standing next to the metal detector before that armed guard even knows that they're there. That's the sad reality. That's the fucked up thing to say. But 
it is what it is. There have been plenty of schools that have had armed guards or metal detectors, and they still end up having this horrific thing going on. So my, my belief is that we should be putting more into helping students with their mental health and well-being. I also believe that if you do believe security is the, the answer, at least try it because nothing seems to be going on. I don't know about you guys, but I really care about the water that I put in my body. I'm talking about the water that I drink on a daily basis. And when I found out how many contaminants are in tap water, and when I saw that surveys show that nearly half of America is potentially drinking toxic water, I started taking things very seriously. I get my clean drinking water by using AquaTrue. I think it tastes better than bottled water, first of all, and its filter eliminates virtually 100% of contaminants. So I know that I'm getting crisp, clean, and delicious drinking water. It also looks great, it's sleek, it's designed to fit on any kitchen countertop, and no plumbing is required, so super easy setup. And it removes 15 times more contaminants than the ordinary purifier water filters that, you know, you can buy online, you see in pretty much any supermarket. I knew that I had to make a change with my drinking water. I mean, this is the water that I'm putting in my body every day. This is the water that my wife and my child are drinking. Gosh darn it. Like, I have to take this seriously. And that is why I started using AquaTrue. And if you guys want to prioritize your health and hydration, then you can head to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com. And use code OPL to grab 20% off your purifier. And they have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So this decision is basically a no-brainer. And believe me, this also makes an amazing gift. The holidays are around the corner. And don't forget to use code OPL at aquatrue.com for that exclusive discount of 20% off. Stay hydrated. Yeah, and I one of the arguments you hear a lot, I'm assuming you know you dismiss this as well, uh, a school shooting happens and you hear, you hear blame on external things. So you hear, uh, if there wasn't so much violence in video games or movies, that's one argument that pops up every time, you know, there's one of these tragedies. Uh, I'm assuming that's something that you just kind of fully dismiss as well. I mean, I wouldn't say I fully dismiss it, but there's violent video games and heavy metal music all around the world. Right. Um, but you only see school shootings on a level like this in America. So that's not something you can blame. You know, and to be honest, I know that a lot of people will get upset. I speak a lot about mental health, but yes, guns are a part of the problem. The reason why so much gun violence happens in America is because we have so many guns. Now, I'm not one for banning guns, but there are definitely some steps that we can take so that all gun owners, like most of them already are, but we need to try to have all gun owners be responsible gun owners. Yeah, we, we appreciate your insight into that and, you know, answering that question. And when it comes to your rehabilitation, it, it seems like your time in prison, you took that very seriously. And one thing I read is that you actually publicly praised the vice principal who stopped you. Can you talk about that a little? Because I believe you said that you owe your life to him. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, after uh, Parkland, Florida, after the massacre there, 
I wrote a letter to a local newspaper because I saw what was going on with the survivors of this terrible shooting, and they were speaking out. And they were facing some people who didn't want to listen to them. So I wrote to the newspaper and I said, we should be listening to these survivors, these people who have witnessed this firsthand, who have experienced this and who will live for the rest of their lives with trauma, we should be listening to what they have to say. And at the same time, I took that opportunity to recognize that my own victims, all of my classmates, all of the staff that were there in Columbia High School, they struggled to that day and to this day with what I'd done. And especially every time they hear about another shooting, they relive what I did. But it was thanks to the vice principal, he saved my life. And I wanted to be able to publicly say that because it's something that I'd never said before. And I wanted people to know that I'm very thankful that this man was there and that he was brave enough to come and grab me and he saved my life. Have you uh, ever spoken to him directly? Uh, so I'm not allowed to speak to him or the teacher. Uh, the courts put orders of protection that are still in place. Okay. If you did have the chance, what would you say, you know, for example, the teacher that you did end up shooting? Yeah, I mean, that's difficult. Um, you know, because words only go so far, right? Um of course, saying I'm sorry, I didn't, it wasn't my intent. That doesn't take away his pain. That doesn't take away what he's lived through. I mean, I would want him to know that, uh, you know, even though he and I had never spoken uh, beforehand, I, I didn't know him, but I've heard nothing but good things about him. I've heard from so many people that he's a wonderful person and that he probably would have helped me if he had known me, if he had known what was going on with me. And uh, I appreciate the fact that, um, you know, he was able to continue working with kids as hard as it was for him. I'm happy he was able to make that positive impact on so many lives after this. Yeah. So what is your life now? So many years removed from this remorseful out speaking about this publicly to help others, yeah. um, but just your day to day and just transitioning out of prison and, you know, living with this reality of, of what you did and what you went through, uh, just, you know, where, where are you now? Who are you as a person? Uh, and has, yeah. has that been easy or what has it been like? When I came home about three years ago, I came home from prison. I was able to get a job. Actually, there was somebody who lived in my hometown who owned their own business and was willing to help me out because they wanted to see me succeed. And I was very lucky to be able to get a job like that. Uh, eventually, I left that job, though, to, to work at a homeless shelter because I wanted to have a job where I felt like I was being a positive influence on the community. Uh, after doing something to hurt so many people, I now wanted to help people. And I began working at the homeless shelter. Uh, and it was amazing to be able to interact with people who needed help the most, who were so appreciative just to get some food. Or I was working running the clothing pantry. So I was able to help people get the clothes that they need and to feel better about themselves. And I loved it. I enjoyed that job. 
Um, unfortunately, last August, uh, a man came into the shelter. Uh, he wasn't a regular. He wasn't somebody who I'd interacted with before. And he wasn't even somebody who, who knew me or knew anything about me. But he he came in and he started arguing with one of my other coworkers. And um, so me and, and two other coworkers, we asked him to relax, to not use the language that he was using and de-escalate the situation. Working on that, he seemed to calm down. Things seemed to be okay. But then eventually he started to get animated when he was sitting and eating his lunch. And he started to yell at me. He started to yell at somebody else. But he mostly started to focus in on me. And I, I was okay with it because I realized that a lot of people who are homeless, they're going through a lot of struggles, whether it's mental health struggles, addiction, or just being on the streets itself is hard enough. But eventually, when he was continuously going and we couldn't de-escalate it anymore, uh, I went and spoke with my boss about uh, having this guy leave. And my boss said, yeah. So I went and I told this guy, I said, I'm sorry, but you got to leave. You can come back tomorrow but you can't be here in the state that you are right now. And he seemed to be okay with it. But then he said, can I go and get my property? Cause we have uh, lockers for, for people to stash their stuff. I said, yeah, of course, go grab your stuff. And um, long story short, he, he came out a minute later and he had swords and he ran right for me and he almost killed me. He did his best. I managed to fight him off even as I ran away and he knocked me down. I, I kicked at him and he started chopping at my legs and he almost took my left foot off. He almost took my right leg off and he just kept swinging. Eventually he would walk away, but it was just to get, you know, he had one sword in the beginning and then he walked away and it was just to get his second sword. And he literally came back at me as I'm lying there covered in blood and he starts swinging again. But I kept holding my legs up. I kept kicking at him. And even when I couldn't kick at him anymore, you know, that's when he got like up above me and he started swinging for my head. And I held my my arms up and he, he practically cut off my hands. So they eventually he stopped because he thought he had done enough to kill me. But when he left and the police came, they put tourniquets on me. And despite all the blood loss, despite the fact that my hands were now practically completely cut off, that my right leg was almost cut off, that my left foot was almost cut off, I somehow managed to survive. And I spent months in the hospital and nursing home. And I'm disabled. I can walk again. It took me a while, but I can walk but my hands no longer really work because even though they were able to, to attach them and sew them on, like I don't have a lot of movement in my hands. So today I can't go back to work right now. I, I'm still trying to work on healing, but I'm also trying to help others. I'm still, I'm using this time to now share my story more and more with others and to hopefully make a positive impact. So that's sort of your goal at the moment is to try and use your story and your experiences and hopefully try to help someone that may be going through, you know, something similar that you were when you were 16. 
Yeah, that's my goal is to help people realize that whether you're a teenager or an adult, when you're struggling, when you're going through something, even in your darkest of moments, I want you to know that it can be okay. So many of us have been through it and we've made it through and life can go on. Life can be beautiful. We just need to be able to have more people open up and share about their own experiences so that when those people are in the darkest of moments and thinking about hurting themselves or thinking about hurting others, they can know we are here with you and we will help you. And that's my goal is to really raise awareness and to end the stigma against mental health so more people can get the help that they need before they ever come to the point where they're wanting to hurt themselves and wanting to hurt others. But again, I'm not blaming mental health, but it's definitely a big piece of the puzzle that we need to be addressing more to prevent not only shootings in schools, but the suicides at home, the overdoses that are happening all over the place. We can be more in touch and we can be more supportive of people because so many people don't have the support they need. So many people don't even have a supportive family. So we, need, we should be able to step in and help people out more. And that's what I'm trying to do right now. Yeah, well, we thank you so much for that message, for coming on here today and reliving, you know, all of the events uh, that, you know, you just went over. And uh, like you said, you know that this will be triggering. I'm sure you know that there's people out there who just may never forgive you. And there's people that you've, you know, in your life who have forgiven you and believed in you and, and believe in second chances. Um, but I think regardless, you know, we agree that it, it does more good, you know, for you to share this story. So we're, you know, happy to have you on and, uh, appreciate it and, you know, wish you luck with everything moving forward. And, you know, I hope that you continue spreading this message on as many platforms as you can. And I, I appreciate it. Because this is not, uh, I understand this is not about forgiveness because so many people will never forgive me. This is just about trying to have that discussion and make the changes possible to save lives. So I appreciate your time and I hope your listeners will, um, will understand that whether you like me or hate me, we just need to be able to come together to prevent these things from happening. Well said. Thank you for, thank you, uh, for the time again. Uh, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Have a good one. You too. Take Bye. care. Bye. That is like an unbelievable story. Um, wow. I don't even know what to say. That's like that's like the I. Yeah, I almost um, I almost just kind of want to let that hang out there for, you know, what it what yeah. it was. I think um you know, again, just from our side of things, it's just one of those chances to hear a perspective that you never would I have yeah. thought that we would have had that conversation. And, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, it's not for us to say, you know, if, if he should be forgiven, if he's changed, if he's genuinely remorseful, you know, all of that, but, um, you know, he's, he's out there, he's sharing the story, he's being very vulnerable. Uh, and it seems like he really believes that there needs to be a lot of changes out there. Uh, and you know, as we know from this show, uh, yeah, there's, 
you know, bills to be passed and politics and all that. But sometimes just sharing your story, sometimes just connecting with people, letting them know they're not alone and how they feel. Um, or even just coming out and saying, you the thing I did in the past was terrible. And I, you know, maybe I shouldn't even be forgiven for that, but I'm going to try to move forward. I'm going to try to be helpful and I'm just going to try to shine some positive light. Uh, that's, that's important. That's how change happens too. Even if it's on a small scale, it's change and, and that's important. Yeah. I think that also, I think it's also important to listen to people like him, to be honest, because Again, like he said, this isn't about forgiveness because it, it doesn't matter fucking whether we forgive him or whatever. That doesn't matter. But we do need to understand why this happened, why it always happens. Or like it happens all the time. Um, it reminds me of like that Netflix show, like Mindhunter. It's like it, they were the first guys that went in. And they were just kind of like interviewing and talking to serial killers just to know like what kind of person they are to have some sort of understanding. So I think it is important to you know, hold people accountable, but also listen and like figure out why this is happening. Can it be prevented? Is it, you know, just a bad apple or is it just, you know, whatever, is there some sort of commonalities between, you know, all of these cases where these things happen? And, you know, I think it requires some, like a bit of empathy so that you can protect the greater good in some sort of way. Um, so I'm, I, that was a wild episode for me, to be honest with you. Like listening to that, I think, you know, a lot of people can learn from that. Um, it's good to be able to talk to someone who was kind of like behind the gun and then where they are now and like where their life's mission is now is the complete opposite mm -hmm. thing. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to go through the traumatic thing uh, to, to like realize that you that like you're not alone or that you could you should have talked to people or you know whatever you can learn from other people's experiences so that's why i think it's important to talk to people that have been through things like this um yeah and he's he's spoken yeah. about this um on a few other platforms i believe his social media his name's john romano um if you look it up you'll you'll see all the news articles you'll see everything out there if it's um you know if you want to follow his story more and what he's saying yeah but wild man um yeah, for anyone out there that would like to be a guest on our show, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Our uh, email is oplpodcast at gmail.com. Send us an email and we will get back to you. Yeah, guys, send that story. And thank you. You know, he, he reached out to us today. So many of you guys reach out to us. Uh, we've said it before, but just thank you for choosing our platform, you know, for, for those of you who do. Uh, so definitely reach out to us there. Uh, you could follow us on uh, Instagram, TikTok at OPL podcast. Uh, you could support at patreon.com slash OPL show. And that's all we got this week. See you guys next time. <laughs>